Good morning, everyone. This is Rich Larson. Thanks for joining us for Public Policy this week. I want to take a second to tell you about this particular show. My co-host, Nathan Leaf, who is a brand new member of our public policy host, Bullpen, he and I took a field trip last week to the University of Minnesota's Center for Transportation Studies to talk to them about the work they are doing in developing connected autonomous vehicles. And yes, that does mean cars that drive themselves. Our hosts at CTS, Gina Boss, Frank Dowd, and Brian Davis, wanted to begin our conversation in the garage where they were able to show us the self-driving vehicle that they have created. That portion of the conversation was done without the benefit of microphones or a mixing board and was only captured on a handheld recorder. So as the difference in sound quality jumps back and forth during this show, you'll understand why. We hope you'll enjoy this fascinating conversation. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, March 24th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show who are experts in their fields. I'm Nathan Leaf, one of your hosts for this morning's show. And the man sitting next to me is my co-host, Rich Larson. Today, we're going to peer into the near future of transportation and take a long look at connected autonomous vehicles. Self-driving vehicles were once just a quirky idea from a science fiction movie or a buddy cop TV show from the early 1980s. But today, we are inching closer to connected autonomous vehicles becoming reality. Rich and I are at the University of Minnesota's Center for Transportation Studies to talk to the experts and to see where things currently stand. With us today are three guests from the university. Gina Boss is an associate director with the Center for Transportation Studies. In this position, she provides overall leadership for the center in the areas of engagement and education through identifying new opportunities, securing funding, directing programs, guiding program and project delivery, and establishing future directions. She also oversees the center's education and workforce development functions, providing strategic direction and leading project delivery for outreach, education and training opportunities that support K through 12 students, undergraduate and graduate students and practitioners. Since 2010, Boss has served as a member of the Transportation Research Board's Education and Training Committee, while also participating on the committee's leadership team as the communications coordinator. Also with us today is Frank Dauma. Frank is the Director of State and Local Policy and Outreach, Institute for Urban and Regional Infrastructure Finance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Frank has broad experience in the legal aspects of transportation policy and in policymaking for multimodal urban and rural transportation systems. His research focuses on policy and legal issues related to transportation technologies, including telework, tolling, and other transportation finance tools, safety, data privacy, and self-driving vehicles. Frank has been widely quoted in the media, from the New York Times, the Star Tribune, and the Fergus Falls Daily Journal, to the Wall Street Journal and the White Bear Press. He has also authored a number of legal and academic journal articles. And finally, our third guest is Brian Davis. Brian is Associate Director of the Mobility Technology Laboratory in the university's Department of Mechanical Engineering. His research focuses on the development of technologies and systems to improve transportation safety and productivity. This work includes applications such as high-accuracy roadway mapping, driver assist and lane departure warning, connected vehicles and telemetry, safety data reporting, and transportation safety. Gina, Frank, and Brian, welcome to Public Policy this week. Thank you all for inviting us to your offices and, uh, and showing us around. 
Well, and welcome to you, Rich and Nate. We really appreciate you coming up to the university and checking out one of our newest toys. It's a cool toy. (laughs) (laughs) Gina, I'd like to start by asking you about the Center for Transportation Studies here at the University of Minnesota. Can you give us a good overview of what goes on here at CTS? Uh, What are the goals of the center and what are the major projects that are taking shape here? Great. Thanks for the question, Nate. Uh, We view CTS really as sort of the umbrella organization at the university for all things transportation, research, engagement, and education. We don't operate the parking ramps or sell the transit passes, but we do just about everything else as it relates to transportation here on campus. So we work with over 30 uh, colleges and departments, over 100 uh, faculty, researchers, and then we also obviously connect with students to really try and um, address transportation challenges. Um, So we're looking uh, not only at things that are going on today, but we're also looking out ahead to what's going to happen in the future. So for example, uh, we have experts that are developing pavement materials that last longer or are better at patching potholes. So something that we all care about this year for sure. Uh, And then today's topic, connected and automated vehicles, is really um, one of those examples of where we're looking at how we're shaping our transportation system in the future. So in addition to research, we also support uh, support the current and uh, future workforce through our education and training efforts. So uh, for university students, they're obviously working on research projects, which is really a great training ground for students as they're prefer- uh, preparing for their, their future careers. But we also help facilitate internship opportunities with MnDOT and local agencies so that students really understand firsthand what types of careers they can pursue after they graduate. For uh, middle and high school students, we offer two camps in the summer that focus on uh, transportation and career opportunities. And of course, we hope that if college is in their future, that they're going to consider coming to the University of Minnesota. Uh, And then finally, we also provide training for state, city, and county staff so that they are equipped with the latest skills and knowledge that they need to maintain, operate, build the, the transportation system. So finally, we also convene and engage stakeholders on a variety of transportation topics. So sometimes it's helpful to have an entity, an entity like CTS, maybe a neutral third party, who can facilitate conversations on topics where there are different perspectives and there isn't always agreement on how to move forward. So we really view that as an essential function of our center and to be that resource for information for policymakers um, and other, you know, and decision makers as well. Uh, one of the newest programs that I direct is the MinCav ecosystem, which is focused on calves, as we call them. So by having this established program, we're really able to bring together different experts and approach the challenges of connected and automated vehicles from a variety of perspectives perspective. So for example, Frank is a policy and legal expert, while Brian is an engineering and technology expert. And we really see that as actually being a strength of the University of Minnesota, is that we have these diverse disciplines, not only talking to each other, but working together on projects. And we really see that as our job at CTS, to bring together uh, these different perspectives to work on common problems. Okay. I want to talk about the really cool toy. Uh, uh, you've got a 2021 
Chrysler Pacifica in your garage, and we were upstairs for about a half an hour talking about uh, this thing. That car's been outfitted, outfitted with cameras, sensors, radar, LIDAR, all other sorts of bells and whistles that, that will allow it to drive itself. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a 2021 Chrysler Pacifica. None of this comes standard. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so the, the body is a, what used to be a stock uh, Chrysler Pacifica minivan. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked with an integrator in Michigan who took the vehicle and then they kind of added all this extra stuff onto it. Okay. Um, and that's why this vehicle is interesting, is yeah. all of this extra stuff. Yeah. So on the top, that's sort of where all the um, sensors are. Uh, so we have um, video cameras on the front and back. We have LiDAR, uh, which is a sensor that gives information about the geometry of objects around the vehicle. We also have GPS, or more generally GNSS. Um, and that works similar to the GPS in your phone, but ours is accurate to the diameter of a quarter. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So it, it uses corrections information from Minnesota Department of Transportation, and it combines that with the information it gets from the satellites, processes that, and gives us a very, very accurate idea of where the vehicle is, like its latitude and longitude. Right. So all these sensors together um, all funnel into this computer in the back. And what the computer does is it takes in all these all these different individual sensors, it kind of makes a picture of what's going on around the vehicle. So between the cameras, the radar, the LIDAR, um, what's happening around the vehicle, where, where am I mm-hmm. in, in the world, where mm-hmm. am I relative to other objects, where am I relative to the lane lines, um, and then kind of on a bigger level, like where am I within the city and where do I want to go? Right. So it, it puts all that information together and then it sends control information to the vehicle itself. So um, am I stepping on the brake? Am I stepping on the gas? Um, should I turn the steering wheel? Should I shift gears? Um, and then it uses that to control the vehicle. And then as the vehicle moves, the sensors you know, take another sample of data and it just keeps doing that over and over again. It's a hodgepodge of sensors. It's a lot of different stuff. And the reason that our car kind of looks like this is because we want it to be we want this car to be a good platform for experimentation. Sure. So as different professors um, and researchers at the U want to look at different things, you know, someone might want to look at cameras or someone might, might want to look at radar and we want to have all these different options available. So when you look at like, say a Tesla or something, you don't see all this stuff around because right. they're, they know they only need certain sensors and they kind of can put them in the car. So in order to be a, a self-driving vehicle, all of this is not necessary. Right, yeah. Okay. okay. So, for, so, for example, some Teslas famously use pretty much only vision. Okay. Um, other vehicles will use kind of a mixes of LiDAR and radar. Um, but, yeah, we have kind of one of everything. Right. <laughs> um, so that we have a, a full menu for researchers that want to look at different stuff. Okay. And how does that change the processing requirements and storage? Yeah, so... When you're running all these sensors at once, it's a, it's a lot of data. Um, right. So we have the ability to store about 20 terabytes of data if we're, all, if we're logging it all. Um, we have a pretty beefy computer um, that has 
a couple pretty beefy processors and that lets us look at all the data at once. So we have four high definition cameras, the LiDAR sensor on the front of the vehicle that creates 2.4 million points per second. And every point is a kind of an XYZ. So it's a lot of it's a lot of information flowing into and through the computer. So it, it takes a lot of effort to even just to read that data in its raw form and transform it into something useful. Plus kind of all those other steps of, you know, what does this data mean? Can you tell us how all those tools work together to produce a driving a self-driving system? How do autonomous vehicles operate? Can you just please give us a, a little bit of the uh, different level on the, on the different levels of automation? Yeah, so there's a lot of sensors on that vehicle, and, and what they do all together is they try to approximate what, what you and I do as a human driver. So just to, just to replicate the task that you and I take for granted every single day, we have to have cameras and LiDAR and radar and computers and GPS, all sorts of stuff. What those sensors do is they build up a cloud of data that represent the environment around the vehicle. And that includes things like where are the closest um, road signs and what do they say? Uh, are there traffic lights and are they giving information? Where are the other vehicles? Where are pedestrians and cyclists? Um, where is any potential hazard and also, where am I within the lane, and how do I get to where I'm going? Um, so once the vehicle has all that information, it has to process it and, and, and figure out using various algorithms and data processing techniques, um, putting that information all together to make sure that it has a good idea of what's going on around the vehicle. So um, in different weather conditions, different sensors have um, strengths and weaknesses, so um, in a situation where a video camera has a hard time seeing, um, maybe a radar would have a better time figuring out, um, oh, the car in front of me is stopping, I need to brake also. Um, the levels of automation is sort of this idea where ranging from very simplistic to very complex. So you could imagine on one end of the spectrum is a vehicle that has um, adaptive cruise control or, or something that is um, commonplace in most new vehicles now, uh, ranging all the way on the other end of the spectrum to something that is very complex. Uh, imagine a, a fully self-driving vehicle, and, and everywhere in between is, is represented. So the interesting point is right in the middle somewhere, there's a shift between a human is driving the vehicle and a car is driving itself or the system is driving the vehicle. And, and that's the point that we're really interested in looking at. So, I mean, this vehicle, is this, I, I mean, should, should we think about this as like, for lack of, like a pace car? I mean, I mean, this is sort of, I mean, plowing the field for other autonomous vehicles to come after, is that? Yeah, a good way to think about this car would be like, if you go to an auto show and there are those kind of exhibition or prototype cars yep. where, this will never be on the road. There will never be thousands of these yeah. these weird-looking, yeah. funny-acting vehicles, but it is pieces of it will make its way down. Got it. And that, that's another kind of interesting point is, although we really get excited about fully self-driving vehicles, right. all of these individual technologies are slowly making their way down to other vehicles. So, um, you know... My, my minivan will break if I come up on a stopped car or you know, Subaru's will 
kind of help you stay centered in the lane. I mean, a lot of cars do a lot of these functions. And as the technology gets more mature and more affordable, they make their way down, and that makes kind of every car a lot safer. I have a 20-year-old minivan that will beep at me if I'm backing up too close to something. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now when I drive my Toyota, especially when I have, like, the automatic cruise control activated and the lane keeping, the lane assist technology, I'm always looking to see it be sort of validates what we did learn. So yeah, yes, it'll if it if there isn't if there's a stretch of pavement where there isn't a lane marking to follow, it'll start to veer to try to find that lane marking. So so it's you know the, the technologies are already in our vehicle, so then it's how how do we inform like agencies mm-hmm. and you know about best practices and, and some of that's gonna be coming from the federal uh, the federal level, so there is a very boring, uh, it's called the MUTCD, and it's the M- Manual for Uniform Traffic Control Devices. Okay. And so they're actually supposed to be coming out with an update this spring, and they will begin to, to address um, some best practices as it relates to some of the current technology. But as we know, the technology is always changing. What is the state of autonomous vehicles right now? How is the technology being rolled out at what pace? And this sort of works, I think, into the, the levels of automation, too. Um, essentially, what I want to know is how long is it going to be before I can tell my car to drive me to work in the morning? Yeah, so a- autonomy in, in vehicles has been, it's been a thing for a while, and, and we're right in an exciting time where it's, it's really starting to boom, and vehicles are, are capable of doing really interesting things. Um, you know, we're, we're obviously not quite to fully self-driving cars, um, depending on who you ask, but um, kind of those, those middle steps on the continuum are, are where it's really interesting. So as these technologies progress and become more mature, we are seeing individual pieces of a self-driving car making its way into you know, you're in my car. So, for example, we were talking about how my van has um, forward emergency braking or a, another vehicle might have lane keeping um, or lane assist. So as we, as we build these technologies, there, there is that goal of, you know, can we build the really cool self-driving car? But also in the meantime, how can we use this information and these technologies that we're developing in a way that's going to help people right now? And if I can just uh, add on to that, um, when I first really started to get into studying self-driving vehicles, uh, which is about 2012, uh, there was uh, another researcher who quipped that uh, self-driving vehicles have been 20 years away for the last 80 years. And uh, now I'd say we're probably in a window where we're talking about them being five years away. So in 2012, there was a lot of talk about having self-driving vehicles in within five years by 2017. Obviously, we don't have a self-driving vehicle in our driveway here in 2023. But at that same time, in 2012, you did not have, you could not see that technology operating anywhere. And now here in Minnesota, we've had three or four, depending on how you count, demonstrations of self-driving technologies in different cities in Minnesota. So they're actually here, but it's how you define um, the actual deployment. And uh, there are a lot of different ways that they can be deployed. Um, uh, and whether it actually gets to be the one that takes you to work depends on a lot of other factors. So, Brian, you mentioned a boom. Um, 
it's not just a boom in technology, but it's also a boom in incremental technology that's getting into our cars, as well as a boom in the actual number of autonomous vehicles that are, are being both tested and used on the roads. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we see a big jump in, in technology, and, and that is really what's driving kind of a relative acceleration in the proliferation of this technology. So both um, cars that purport their ability to self-drive and also cars that are adding incremental safety features. And, and really, safety is the key part where it's exciting to think about a self-driving car, but really it's, it's more exciting to think about a safe self-driving car and how do we make our car today safer with the similar technology? And it sounds like that would lead to an even higher level of co- cooperation between uh, university and public institutions such as this and the private sector than there is in, say, other fields. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, there, there's a lot of teamwork that goes on between the public and the private sector, um, especially in this field. So you can imagine where vehicle manufacturers really want to make the, the best vehicle with the best sensors and the best algorithms, but also they need to operate on real roads. So they need to work with public sector partners like um, departments of transportation who need to um, stripe their roads in a way that vehicles can detect um, they need to create signs that the vehicles can detect with their cameras, um, making sure that all these pieces work together. Tell, tell us more about the data. What exactly are you collecting? Are you, is it just, is it, what, well, what is it? What are, what are we collecting? Yeah, so on its, uh, at its most basic level, we want to collect kind of the, the raw output. So from the GPS, we want to collect latitude, longitude, speed. From the LiDAR, we want to collect a long list of XYZ points. And why that's important is because researchers can use that data later and kind of play back these trips, and then they can try different algorithms on it. If you sort of look at it from one level up, additional data that we want to collect is sort of how does this data relate to the infrastructure? So Mm -hmm. uh, Gina will talk a lot more about the DriveMN project. In addition to kind of the raw data, we collected a lot of sort of human human coded data about like you know where the lane line's good could a camera see them was the street sign broken so a lidar might miss it things like that okay one way to kind of interpret the information that the vehicle is taking in is it's it's a cloud of of information or a cloud of data around the vehicle so combining the cameras and the lidar and the radar information you build up a model of what's happening around Mm -hmm. the vehicle so uh, you could imagine a car that's in front of, of this vehicle, it would see it on the cameras, it would see it with the radar, it would see it with the LIDAR, but, but other objects might only be seen with a couple. So again, that's sort of why the computer's so, so powerful is because it builds up this model of, you know, if I see something in one sensor but not another, does it actually exist or is, it a, is there a problem with the sensor? Or um, if I see something with all the sensors, we're, we're pretty sure there's something there. And, mm-hmm. Kind of fusing the fusing the data together is is a whole area of research unto itself, and creating this this sphere around the vehicle, so that we know, you know, I see a street sign and a car and a bicyclist and a pedestrian. Like now, what do I do with that? Gina, can you tell us about the Drive Minnesota tour? What were the purposes of the event, and what did you and your colleagues take away from it? 
Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that a little more. And this is a, a, a project that, again, has those three sectors. So uh, the Minnesota Department of Transportation funded this research, and the University of Minnesota, we worked with our partners, uh, VSI Labs, which is a, a technology company here in uh, in town, as well as uh, Bolton & Mank, which is a, an engineering consulting firm. And what we were trying to assess, the ba- really that... that major uh, question that we were looking at is how ready is Minnesota's infrastructure for connected and automated vehicles? And this was really a, it was a baseline gathering of data. So this was a research endeavor. Uh, so we, w- we weren't quite sure what we were going to find when we set off. But we drove uh, last August. Drive Minnesota was um, a prescribed route of over a thousand miles uh, that crisscrossed the state over four days. So we started and ended in the Twin Cities, but um, during those four days we ended up stopping in seven other communities. And, and it was data gathering and engagement as well. So we also um, invited uh, local agencies, policymakers, others who are just interested in the technology to come and sort of have a meet and greet, see, see the vehicles and really try to understand uh, what, what's needed. And, and policymakers, that's an important aspect of it because especially at the local level, you know, they're having to make decisions on how they fund uh, transportation. And and so some of these things that would need to be done require decisions about resources. Uh, But some of the things that we were really paying attention to and what we tried to incorporate in the, uh, throughout the drive was we looked at both asphalt and concrete pavements, uh, two, four, six lane roadways, uh, we tried to make sure we were going through work zones. This is probably the only time where you would actually seek out a work zone. So we were actually trying to find road uh, work zones to go through. Ra- we looked at roundabouts, traffic signals. We were also even looking at things like we were fortunate. We actually did run into some fog. Again, you know, you're not necessarily planning for that. But, but we had fog. We looked at driving into morning glare as well as um, evening glare to see if that would impact um, and so with all that data, once that was all collected, we ran, uh, then post-processed it and ran it through a series of, of algorithms, self-driving algorithms, to see how the, the road uh, or the vehicles performed on the roads that they, that they traveled on. Uh, and so we're, you know, in the process, we've, we've finished up uh, that, that initial work and are starting to share that information with um, Minnesota, DOT, and other, uh, lo- other agencies. But the, the key thing, and, and Brian mentioned it earlier, pavement markings are tremendous because, right, again, with radar and sensors and cameras, that is a guidepost for the vehicles. So thinking through, you know, and, and so... Uh, for example, we, we see those out on, again, mostly out on our roads that are the two lanes, four lanes, six lanes, but local roads, residential roads, don't often, aren't often striped. They don't have a center line. So these are all things that have to be thought about as you're thinking um, or looking at uh, making changes. And, but it's also an opportunity. So as new, um, uh, new roads are, are are going in or you're, you're rehabilitating or reconstructing, repairing a road. These are some things that can be thought about as you're already working and doing, uh, doing different types of, of things on that particular segment. So, uh, it, again, where, you know, it's not definitive, you should do this, but it, it starts to provide, uh, I think, guideposts for, for looking ahead and, and what 
what we need to be thinking about that's going to support these vehicles. And again, as Brian said, it's not just 15, 20 years from now. It is really um, how can it support those technologies, the lane assist technologies that, that we currently have on our roads or on our vehicles. Okay, that actually sort of leads into my next question, because um, I want to talk about infrastructure. Um, for our society to start living uh, in an autonomous vehicle world, what needs to happen outside of the vehicles themselves? Uh, what sort of education is necessary for pedestrians, and bicyclists, and whoever else? Um, what adaptations do we need to make for autonomous vehicles? Uh, well, uh one thing that we've we've found through uh, the, some of the demonstrations that are happening in Minnesota, uh, in uh, Grand Rapids and Rochester and, and White Bear Lake, is that uh, just like Le- like Gina mentioned, that uh, some of the striping and and uh, other activities that we do now, we actually just need to do them better uh, for the technology, which will lead to benefits for for everyone. So whether it's uh, creating transit stops that are accessible 365 days a year rather than piling the snow there, or uh, whether it's uh, creating bike lanes that are clearly defined so that the technology can uh, pay attention to where the vehicles, where the automated vehicles go and where the bikes and the pedestrians uh, go, uh, those are all key pieces that uh, need to be put into uh, the planning and it's it's not just to bring the technology in, but really, what is it that we already do? And if we do it better, it'll make the technology work better. Yeah, I'd also add that it, that education piece also is related to other drivers. So during some of these demonstrations, we've found that other drivers that are interacting with these vehicles on on our roads don't quite know how to respond or don't quite know what to do when they're approaching or if they want to try to pass or so so there's that level of uncertainty and then that increases uncertainty for bikes and pedestrians because they're also not sure how the these vehicles are going to not only the automated vehicle but also uh, non-automated vehicles who are interacting how they're all going to play together or not play together uh, so it's the the education piece is is important and that's a really key aspect of the uh, the demonstrations that are going on and the research that's going on here at the university. Uh, we're not trying to convince everybody that they should like them, but we're trying to provide education and awareness about the technologies as well as work on trying to improve how they operate um, as, uh, as, the, as it evolves. And I think there's also a aspect of people getting comfortable with the technology and realizing sort of that it's something that they probably have experienced before, whether they've uh, ridden uh, a shuttle at the airport or actually been on an airplane itself, which has a lot of uh, driver assist technology, if you will, uh, in it. And um, uh, if people start to understand and experience the technology to realize that this is not some sort of space age never experienced it before experience but really something that they feel comfortable with uh, that will also uh, help with people accepting and and bringing the technology forward so then it just makes me wonder what are um, potential ethical considerations when when we're talking about uh, autonomous vehicles um, how do autonomous vehicles force traffic laws to adapt when you've got a vehicle that 
is not operated by a human being, you know, who or what gets prioritized in case of an accident and how, where does all that fit? How does all that work into this? I think there's there's two levels uh, to to answering that question. On the one side is is the legal side, which is uh, who bears responsibility uh, when something goes wrong. Uh, currently, uh, when you see the ad on late night TV, have you been injured in an accident? Uh, that's because they want to work with uh, uh, the insurance company that is dealing with which human made the mistake. And uh, now we're moving into a world where at some point. It's looking at what the technology, where something went wrong with the technology. And uh, to that aspect, you know, what decision, you know, you can start to worry about, well, what decisions is the technology going to make? And that's an aspect where you can be much more uh, deliberate and planful for anticipating what those situations are. Again, to go back to commercial aviation, uh, I haven't known a commercial airliner to have to make a decision in a very long time about whether it's going to preserve the pilot and passengers or it's going to preserve people on the ground. Instead, they anticipate how can you not have to have that decision be made. And so you can put that into the technology and be able to uh, uh, avoid that kind of doomsday question that is really going to be a very rare situation if it happens at all. Yeah, the Department of Public Safety, State Patrol, um, the rest of law enforcement in Minnesota, they're really key stakeholders to these conversations. And I would say not all the answers have been figured out, and and Frank's the legal expert, but the other piece is thinking through, like, with first responders. So again, fire, police, uh, EMS, how do you, when you respond, because we will be in this time, there will be a, a significant amount of time where we have a mixed uh, a mixed fleet. So we're going to have vehicles that are more in the self-driving and then regular uh, vehicles where the driver is still primarily in control. And so when there, and you can't say if, but when there are crashes, there, uh, how do you respond to that? Are there considerations that you need to be aware of if one of the vehicles is... Um, self-driving versus or automated versus um, not. So law enforcement, emergency response, uh, fire, all of them are really key um, stakeholders in these conversations. And, and again, important to be at the table um, from the, you know, from the beginning. I want to shift the discussion to economics. Uh, broadly speaking, what are the potential economic impacts of the deployment of autonomous vehicles? And what are the industries that could benefit the most and potentially which ones get hurt the most? So the economics question is a complex one. And it's a matter of everything from uh, who pays for the infrastructure to uh, who absorbs the cost of paying for the vehicle uh, to um, uh, what jobs may be uh, changing as we go forward. And the, uh, the, the questions vary uh, throughout, uh, or the answers vary throughout. Um, if you are thinking about uh, how do you pay for the vehicle, um, it's currently the technology is fairly expensive. It's new. That's not uh, atypical for a new technology to come in. But you can also think about the technology uh, being more accessible because the fact that you don't need to have uh, an individual owner or an individual driver. Uh, you can uh, have the vehicle uh, serving more as a transit vehicle, moving people as they need a ride, kind of an automated Uber, an automated Lyft, and you are paying by the ride, 
uh, rather than uh, paying for the whole vehicle up front and you're sharing the cost that way. Um, you can also think about uh, the uh, companies that uh, are going to make money. Obviously, there has been a lot of money invested to bring the technology to where it is, and more money will come, um, again, largely from the private sector because they anticipate that this is going to be a way to create a greater return uh, on making vehicles, on uh, how the vehicles are used and paid for. Uh, the technology firms, uh, the, the big investors include Google, Waymo, uh, but also uh, General Motors and some of the other, other automated, uh, automotive companies. And then um, finally, the question of, uh, you know, what are the jobs that are going to change? Um, there is a lot of discussion about, you know, what about the professional driver? What about the, the person who drives the truck or drives the, the transit bus or something like that? And uh, that is something that uh, needs to be addressed and carefully watched. But uh, there currently are not enough truck drivers and bus drivers out there to meet the demand. And uh, so the uh, opportunity to meet rides that currently aren't being offered. I'll go to the Grand Rapids demonstration where they have just surpassed 1,500 rides in less than six months in an area where transit is otherwise limited due to cost and driver availability. So uh, there are trips that can be made that can be uh, provided beyond what is already being done without taking one additional human driver off the road. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip ahead to a a question, Frank, that I wanted to pose, I think, I think to you, but we'll, we'll see how this works. One of the things we hear about with CAVs is cyber, or, is it, or do we say cabs, not CAVs? We say cabs. cabs. Okay. One of the things we hear about with cabs is cybersecurity. What are the dangers of an autonomous vehicle being hacked? And are policymakers addressing these concerns yet? Are they even prepared to address these concerns? Where are we with that? Um, that's a that's a great question, and 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 uh, the 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 reality is that uh, a lot of that cybersecurity question is stuff that we're dealing with right now. Um, several years ago, uh, Wired magazine uh, demonstrated how hackers could uh, take over the vehicle that the um, the authors were driving with permission, but just to show what could be done uh, with vehicles that we're driving now, and. Um, uh, similarly, with location information, uh, our telephones and our, 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 our cars today are relaying location information uh, uh, to uh, various folks that we, to the best of our ability, grant permission to do so. And uh, when we come to talking uh, CAVs or CAVs, uh, it's a matter of uh, those same questions and uh, understanding uh, what is going to be the state of the, the, the art for being able to protect data, protect information, harden the the hardware and the software so that uh, the hackers are not able to get into it. It's a it's a issue that is being fought now and uh, will continue to be fought into the future. Yeah, just to add on a little bit, I mean, th- that is a really good question. And making sure that the, the data and the information around these systems are secure is, is really important, but also when it comes to securing um, cyber-physical systems where Safety is a really um, important consideration. Um, there's, there's a lot of research specifically into how do we secure systems that have like a real-world presence. Um, vehicles have more of a real-world presence than, say, a, a server on a rack somewhere. So making sure that we're keeping people safe is a, is a key component of, of securing these systems. 
What, what's fortunate is we have a lot of research going on in this area, you know, across different, different researchers, even here at the university. Another, another benefit of this question is we're asking it now before these systems are, are being deployed in, in really wide-scale um, deployments. And another, another consideration to keep in mind is these are questions that we have asked before. In the same way that we need to keep airliners safe, air traffic control systems, the control systems that control dams and you know, nuclear plants, these are all questions that, that, that exist and have been answered. So you know, in, the, in the automation world, we're, we're sort of coming at this as what is, what is this question? What does it mean? But also we're looking to other industries and seeing how have, how have other groups solved this? I mean, what questions have they asked and how have they solved them? And, and another significant point to remember about cybersecurity and, and so forth is that it is, uh, it's currently illegal, illegal right now to take someone uh, in a vehicle where they don't want to go. Uh, it will be just as illegal for uh, telling an automated vehicle to do that same thing. We are coming to the end of our time, and we always like to give our guests the last word on this show. This question is to each of you. What did we miss? Are there any other questions we should be asking you? I think I'll just start by saying we, we didn't have a chance to go into much detail about why we should be doing this in Minnesota. And weather is one of those key elements. So we see a lot of these demonstrations happening in uh, the southern part of the U.S. where they don't have to deal with things like uh, snow on the roads or, and, and sleet and, and have to address those types of issues. And so we think that it's important that we're doing this work here in Minnesota because they're great portion of the country uh, deals, with, uh, deals with this type of weather. Yeah, so weather is absolutely a huge factor in these vehicles. Mm-hmm. The, like you were saying, a lot of the work is in sunny California, mm-hmm. sunny Arizona, sunny New Mexico, sunny Florida. Um, winter is a huge factor for a, a gigantic portion of the, of the country. So yeah, we, we have all these different sensors, and, and one of the reasons is when one sensor has a hard time in a particular weather condition, we want the other ones to pick up the slack. So, for example, the cameras are a good example, because you, if you're driving in a whiteout condition, you, you can't see, but even when it's snowing really hard or, or blowing snow, the radar can still see. It doesn't have any problem looking through snow. So. That's an advantage of having all these different sensors. Right. Um, we have, maybe Gina can talk about, we have some of our researchers are working specifically on how do these vehicles work in the winter. Right, yeah, so Raj, Rajamani, who's going to be doing the seminar, so he, he is particularly interested in this question, so he's a mechanical engineer like Brian is, and um, so he's very interested in that, and then looking at applying different technologies that will be that backup. So one of those things is, can we use GPS and the GNSS corrections to help the vehicle see the lanes, even though the cameras, and even in some cases the other sensors, might not be able to. But the difference is that we're we're fortunate in Minnesota that we've built out the system that can do the corrections. In a lot of other states, they haven't. So that's that's where we just continue to run into there, there has to be a role for the federal government to help establish some of these standards in order for the public and the private sector to really kind of understand what the playing field is that they're going to be they're going to be operating in so 
and that's been that's been one of the big reasons why we've had demonstrations in Minnesota first back in 2017-2018 on the Min, Min Road facility, which is just a, a test facility next to 94 there, and then uh, Rochester and uh, currently uh, White Bear Lake and uh, Grand Rapids is looking at how different providers of this technology um, are being able to bring their technology to Minnesota in places with snow and ice and mm -hmm. seeing how their technology reacts to it so that they can continue to develop it. We had a, a student a few years ago at a camp who said uh, it's really cool to finally see that we're doing something about, you know, doing this work in Minnesota because we always just hear about Arizona and California. So uh, it, it's important and because we have specific questions that need to be addressed. So that's why we think it's really important that um, we're doing this work at the University of Minnesota. The point I'll uh, make is uh, to, to emphasize that uh, when you talk about the ability to have the vehicle drive someone and not have to have the physical ability or the financial ability to own and operate your own vehicle, you open up mobility and access to a significant part of the population that currently is dependent on uh, upon uh, transit or other um, ways to get around that don't give them the same uh, autonomy that we currently have if we can drive. So the uh, opportunity to develop new models for transportation for people who currently uh, are transportation disadvantaged is a very exciting opportunity for me. It's, it's definitely an exciting time to be doing this research and working on these, these technologies and, and answering these tough questions. Um, and there are a lot of tough questions, which is why it's, it's so exciting to be, to do, to be doing this work. Um, but it's also important to keep in mind that this work is really important because the benefits of these systems are not just, um, is this a neat thing to show off to my neighbor? But there's, there's real implications when it comes to um, making roadways safer. And, and like Frank was saying, um, increasing access um, for people who um, need to get to places but aren't otherwise able to get there. So, you know, big, big improvements to safety, mobility, and accessibility. I mean, Really, that's, I think that's the takeaway of, of this work, and that's why it's so important to make sure that, that we're, we're, we're answering these tough questions. Being on Minnesota radio, I expected somebody to bring up automated pothole detection. <laughs> <laughs> there is an app for that, I believe. So, <laughs> Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt. This last point that Nathan made just didn't fit in anywhere else in the conversation, but it's a very interesting and quick point about the use of AI. Here it is. Well, one of the videos I was watching, the, the quote from the industry um, expert was the autonomous vehicle problem is the AI problem. They're the same problem. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and it got into this interesting dichotomy we have where we will, we will tolerate humans being unsafe on the road. We will not tolerate automated vehicles that are demonstrably safer, even that small little right. window of right. unsafe it's a, that's a, it's okay. No, go ahead. That's an interesting point because that, that is something. The public perception piece is such a huge component of automation and connectivity in general. It, it's kind of the same, the same questions that we've, that we've looked at in the past when, when people said, I will absolutely not get into an elevator that doesn't have a human operator. Right. And how many, how many human operated elevators have you been in in your lifetime? It, it's a. It's quaint. Yeah, it's, it's one, a, in, one in Paris. I think. Zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it kind of the the public perception is 
very, very strongly held and moves slowly, but I think it will change over time. It's like everything, critical mass, and what is that point where you hit it? But to, to your point, these vehicles have the potential to be much, much safer than human drivers. Humans make a lot of mistakes when driving, and it doesn't always end terribly, but... I don't recall the data, but the, the data they'd analyzed from thousands of miles in, in Phoenix, I think it was, was, I mean, it's not even close. The safety factor is by leaps and bounds above humans, but still. Yeah. One accident is on the front page news. It's on the headline on the six o'clock yeah. news. If it's an autonomous vehicle, there could be four fatalities from human vehicles. You won't hear it. Gina Boss, Frank Dalma, and Brian Davis, thank you for inviting us here today and for being so generous with your time. Could you please tell our listeners where they can find more information about the Center for Transportation Studies and the Minnesota CAV ecosystem? How do people sign up for your webinar in April? So cts.umn.edu will take you to our website and you can find all of the information about the things we've talked about today. And, and as you mentioned, we have a, a webinar on April 4th looking at challenges uh, of, uh, of calves in Minnesota. So at anyone's welcome to join. And that's going to conclude this edition of Public Policy this week. We are on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock a.m. On the next edition of Public Policy This Week, Bruce Moreland is going to talk with Joe Mahan of the Federal Reserve Bank. Do not miss that. And thank you all for joining us today on Public Policy This Week. One more thank you to our guests, Gina Boss, Frank Dalma, and Brian Davis. On behalf of my co-host, Nathan Leaf, and myself, have a fantastic afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.